Good morning. My name is Adam. If you don't know me or if you're new with us, it's great to have you here. It's great to be able to open up God's Word together. And there is a saying in the English language that's used to describe when life gets as bad as it could possibly be, when you sink so low that you don't think you could go any lower, when all around you seems dark and hopeless and lost. And the saying, of course, that I'm referring to is, I've hit rock bottom. I've hit rock bottom. And I wonder if you've ever been there in your life. I wonder if you would say at some point in your life that you've hit rock bottom. Well, today we land, we finish our sermon series through the book of Judges. Now, I'm not sure if you're sad about that or if you're relieved about that. It's been quite a journey. And what we see today is that the people of God hit rock bottom. See, the book of Judges has been this gradual downward spiral away from God. And today, that spiral comes to a shocking crash landing. In fact, some of the content that we'll be looking at today is a little bit confronting. And this is why parents, if you have small children with you, then we would encourage you to send them out uh, to our Kids Church Water Fun Day. We have Emma who will be able to uh, escort them there and where they'll be fully supervised. And so I would encourage you, if you have small children, to, uh, to send them through with Emma to our Water Fun Day. But for the rest of us, It's worth remembering what I said in the very first week of this series, and I'm sure you can all remember the sermon in its entirety. But what I said was that the Bible does not condone everything it records. Let me say that again. The Bible does not condone everything it records. In other words, the stories that we read today are not in the Bible because God approves of what actually happened. They're in the Bible because they record what actually did happen. And they reveal to us the consequences of rejecting God, of choosing to ignore God and to run our lives our own way. In fact, these chapters and the the whole book of Judges are really summarised by the final verse of the, the book. Judges 21, 25, which says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the problem in the book of Judges and this is the problem with our world today. We've turned our backs on God and we have turned to ourselves. And the tragic truth that we're going to see in these stories is that when God goes, anything and everything goes. Or we might say this way, when we turn our backs on God, we turn towards anything and everything. And this is the underlying problem in these stories. This is the underlying problem in our world. And today we're going to see that there are consequences to living this way. But lest we think the problem is just out there with everyone else, we need to remember that the stories that we'll be reading through today, they don't take place among the foreign nations who don't know God. These stories take place among the people of God. And so these stories have some very important lessons to teach us. And what they teach us is that there are consequences to living in such a way that you always do what is right in your own eyes. And the chapters that we'll be looking at today divide into two stories. 
And each story teaches us a different consequence for what happens when we do what is right in our own eyes. The first story that we'll be looking at shows us the first consequence, which is religious confusion. The second story we'll be looking at teaches us the second consequence, which is moral corruption. So let's have a look at these two stories. And the first story in uh, chapters 17 to 18 begins with a man named Micah. Now, to be honest, Micah is a little bit of a spoiled brat. The first thing that we see Micah do is steal a huge amount of money from his mum. Now, when his mother realises that this massive amount of her money is missing, she utters a curse aloud on the thief, not realising it was her son. Micah overhears this curse and he gets a little bit nervous, so he confesses the crime and he returns the money to his mother. And his mother's response to this is simply staggering. Look at what his mother says. Verse 2. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Now most mums I know would say, Come here son so I can bless you with the back of my hand. But this mum pronounces a blessing over her thieving son. And this tells us a lot about the dysfunction of this family, which we see again in the next few verses. You see, the mother is so grateful to have the money back that she not only takes back the curse that she uttered, but she uses some of the money to make a metal idol, a metal statue. Look at verse 3. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, a lot of money, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now it looks like on the surface what she's doing is good and godly. You know, she's thanking God for the return of her money by making a statue of God, an idol of God. But what she's actually doing is violating the second of the Ten Commandments, where God says that no one should make an image of him. You see, she's not really obeying God. She's doing what she thinks is right. And Micah, her son, acts in exactly the same way. Look at what he does in verse 5. And the man Micah had a shrine. He's got a bit of a temple going on in his house. And he made an ephod, that's a priestly garment, and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Now, again, on the surface, this might look like it's good, this might look like it's godly, but Micah doesn't have authority to do any of this. He can't just make his own temple and ordain his own priests. He's violating God's commandments. See, on the surface, this family looks like they're honouring God. But in reality, they're disobeying God. They're doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And this is the problem that we're told in verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, God is not being obeyed, God is being ignored. And they're treating God in whatever way pleases them. And let's just admit that this is still a problem for us today. I mean, how often have you heard someone say, well, I don't really believe in a God like that. I prefer to think of God in this way. Or, I know that this is what God says to us in the Bible, but the Bible was written a long time ago. We can't really accept that anymore. I mean, God really needs to get with the times. If God wants to stay relevant, he needs a bit of a makeover. And whenever someone says this, 
What they're effectively saying is we know better than God and God should do what is right in our eyes. God should do what we think he should do. God should say what we think he should say. But if God is really God, if God created us, if God has eternally existed, if God knows the beginning from the end, if God has given us his truth in his word, if we are affected and broken and marred by our sinfulness, then how can we possibly presume to know better than God? This would kind of be like me telling Bob Dylan how to write a decent song. He doesn't know what he's doing and he needs my help. Only what we do with God is way more ridiculous. Tim, if God is really God, he defines what is true, he defines what is right and he defines what is good. And what we must realise is that this means the truth of God will contradict, confront and challenge every human culture at some point. Now, let me say it this way. The shifting sands of human thought and culture and opinion will inevitably smash into the immovable, eternal truth of God. And this is going to be different in different cultures around the world. I mean, what confronts people about the truth of God will be different in Asia compared to Australia. It will be different at different points in human history. What confronts people about the truth of God now will be different in 50 years and was different 50 years ago. But the truth of God will inevitably contradict, confront and challenge every human culture. Because God is good. God is eternal. We are sinful and we are temporary. We see this much. God sees it all. And what this means is when we are confronted by the truth of God, when there's something that God says that we wrestle with, our response should not and cannot be to change the truth of God. Our response must be to humbly let the truth of God change us. Now, I know that for most of us in this room, our, our big issue in our lives is probably not this kind of conscious rejection of God's truth. We probably really do want to submit to God and obey God. Our problem is probably that we reject God's truth far more subconsciously. In other words, when we, come across, when we come across parts of God's truth that we wrestle with, we probably don't just reject it outright. We're far more likely to ignore it or avoid it or to justify why we do what we do. So let me give you a couple of examples. If you read through the Bible, you will discover that God is very insistent that we be generous with our money. I mean, God does not want us to spend all of our money lavishly on ourselves. Now, in our time and place, a culture that's really consumed with materialism, we don't really outright reject that. We don't say, well, I'm not going to do that, God. I'm going to spend all my money on myself. We just don't really think about it. We just avoid applying this truth, really applying this truth to our lives. We don't sit down and ask ourselves, well, what would it look like for, for us to, or for me to live a generous life? We just ignore it. Or... Another example, we know that God's word clearly says that the sexual relationship is reserved for marriage. But many of us just decide to, to sleep together, to move in together prior to marriage. 
and we justify it. We say, well, we live in a different time. The Bible was written a long time ago. It makes financial sense. Sometimes we even spiritualise it. We say, well, we prayed about it and, and God gave, a peace, gave us peace about it. But we need to admit what we're really doing. Whether it's with our money, whether it's with our relationships, whatever it is, we need to admit that we're doing what is right in our own eyes rather than what is right in God's eyes. And this is a problem for us and this was a problem for Micah and his family. And we see this problem only gets worse as the story continues. You see, after Micah makes this idol and he puts it in his household shrine, he meets a Levite who was travelling through town. Now, the Levites were the priestly tribe of Israel. They, these were the uh, people who were given spiritual leadership of God's people in that day. And Micah, he meets this spiritual leader and he realises it's a golden opportunity. I mean, Micah has already ordained his son as a priest, but now he's like, he's a real professional. Wow, here we go. And so he says to this Levite, he says, well, will you come to my home and be my personal priest? The Levite says, well, technically, you, you know, you shouldn't do that, but how much are you paying? Micah's like a lot. The Levite says, when do I start? And so Micah has this professional, personal priest. And again, it, it, it kind of looks like what he's doing on the surface is good and godly, but his real motivation for doing this is revealed in verse 13. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me. Why? Because I have a Levite as priest. In other words, Micah hired this Levite priest, not because he wanted the priest to help him worship God, but because he wanted, he thought that having this priest would obligate God to bless him. In other words, it wasn't about worship, it was about manipulation. And this is what happens when we do what is right in our own eyes. We use God rather than worship him. God becomes a means to an end. God becomes a way to get things. God becomes a lamp that if we just rub it in the right way, the genie might appear and then we might get our wishes granted. And let's just admit that some of us think about God in this way. Like Micah, we believe that there are things that we can do that will obligate God to bless us. If we just serve enough, if we just give enough, if we just read our Bible enough, then surely God has to do something good for me. Surely God has to bless me. And what this attitude reveals is that we don't think fundamentally that God is good. We think that God's arm needs to be twisted if he's going to love us and care for us and bless us. We think we need to convince God. We think God is holding out on us. We think God can't be trusted. And what it reveals is that really we have taken our eyes off all that God has done for us in and through Jesus. Listen to this promise in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, what more do you want God to give? But gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see, you cannot manipulate God and you don't need to manipulate God. You look to the cross, you see Jesus dying in your place and you know for once and for all, forever, that God is for you, that he will not leave you and that he has not forsaken you. Sadly for Micah, he hasn't yet realised this. 
He hasn't yet realised that God cannot be controlled or manipulated and he's about to learn this lesson the hard way. See, in chapter 18, another group of Israelites, the Danites, they show up at Micah's house, they steal Micah's statue and they persuade the priest to come with them. It didn't take much, just a little bit more money. So Micah chases after them and he confronts them, but he's outnumbered and he realises that he's not going to get them back. And Listen to his tragic response in verse 24. He said, you take my gods that I made, that's ironic right there, and the priest, and go away, and look what he says, and what have I left? See, Micah saw this priest as the source of his hope. And in the end, it became the reason for his hopelessness. And before we look down on Micah too harshly, you know, why would he put his hope in a statue and a priest? Let's admit that we often do the same thing. We often put our hope in things that can be taken away from us and things that can often become then the reason for our hopelessness. So if you put your hope in your career, if your job gives you your sense of identity, okayness, your sense of importance in this world and significance, what happens when you lose your job? What happens if you can't work for for whatever reason? What happens if someone is promoted ahead of you? Is your response to say, well, what do I have left? If you put your hope in being a mum, if your identity revolves around having your kids rely on you, then what happens when your kids grow up and move out of home? When they start to build lives of their own? Is your response, well, what do I have left? If your looks and your body give you your sense of self-worth and importance and significance, what happens when time, which is going to happen, takes its toll? What happens when skin sags and hair begins to fall out? I see those smirks. That's not very nice. When we do what is right in our own eyes, we find our hope in things that can be taken away from us. And it's only when we turn to God that we find our source of lasting hope. Because it's only God who will never fail us and who can never be taken away from us. In Psalm 73, we read these words. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, God is the only sure and certain hope in this world. And we're not told if Micah ever discovered this important truth. In fact, sadly, Micah's story ends in a place of despair and hopelessness. And the story of Micah reveals to us the first consequence when we do what is right in our own eyes, religious confusion. We treat God in whatever way pleases us. We use God rather than worship him and we put our hope in things that can be taken away from us. The second story that we're going to look at briefly reveals the second consequence, which is moral corruption. And the story begins this way in chapter 19, verse 1. It says, in those days when there was no king in Israel, do you think the narrator is trying to get something across to us? (laughs) A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. This Levite took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now this is a bad start. 
the Levites, as we've already heard, were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of God's people. And here this Levite is taking a concubine, which is literally a second-class wife, or if we were to put it even more crassly, a sex object. Someone for his status and his sexual gratification. And this is already an indicator of the corruption of God's people. See, God had made clear that marriage was to be between one man and one woman. But here, his people are just trying to keep up with the Joneses. They're trying to fit in with everything that's going on around them. They're trying to keep up with their culture of the time, and so they're taking concubines. Look what happens as the story continues. Verse 2. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. So the concubine runs away, the Levite goes to get her back, he comes to her father's house, and the father is happy to see this Levite. Which is a bit odd, because you think he'd be a bit wary of the guy who literally bought his daughter. But you see, in that day, the penalty for deserting an owner, as this concubine had done, was death. And it was disgrace for the family. And so this father is relieved that this Levite is willing to take her back and not to press charges, as it were. But the question that we have to ask, well, is this woman willing to go back with the Levite? Is the concubine willing to go back with him? And sadly, as the story continues, we no longer hear from her. In fact, the following interaction focuses exclusively on the father and her husband. And we're never told if she agrees to return with the Levite, it's more likely that her father made her return in order to avoid disgrace coming upon the family. And what this tells us is that both the father and the Levite are treating this woman like an object. The father simply wants to use her to avoid disgrace coming upon him. And the Levite simply wants to use her for his status and his sexual gratification. Neither of them really care about the woman herself. And this is a dark picture which is about to become far darker. See, after enjoying the hospitality of the father for a few days, the Levite, the concubine and his servants begin their journey home. But they begin their journey home at the end of the day or towards the end of the day. And so they don't get very far before they have to find accommodation for the night. They first come to a city called Jabus, the home of the Jebusites. But the Levite refuses to stay there because it's a foreign town. The Jebusites are foreigners and he's worried that they won't be safe in this town, which is about to become very ironic in just a moment. See, they push on and they come to a town called Gibeah. And Gibeah belonged to the Israelite tribe of Benjamin. These are God's people. And the Levite thinks that he will be safe among his own people. But he couldn't be more wrong. Look at what we read in verse 15. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Now this isn't a big deal for us, but in the days before hotels and Airbnb, this is a massive deal. No one's offering them any hospitality. And this is especially foreboding because these are God's people. These are their own people and they're not offering them hospitality. Eventually, an old man shows up and he says to them, I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. 
Now, this is really odd. I mean, what's going on? This is not a Canaanite town. This is Israel. This is God's people. What is so dangerous about staying in the town square? Well, we quickly discover that not all is well in this Israelite town. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Now, this is a shocking turn of events and the the Levite and the old man are understandably scared. But this does not excuse their response, which is one of atrocious cowardice and callousness. Look at what they do. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Now, why would they do this? Why would they protect the men? Why would they offer up the women so nonchalantly? Tim Keller helps us. He says, the Ephraimite, that's the old man, like the Levite and the concubine's father, sees women as property, less valuable and more expendable than a man. This was the view of women held by the surrounding cultures and this was the view imbibed by the men of Israel rather than the creation principle of God that man and women are both created in his image, both equally intrinsically valuable. They offer up the women because their view of women is twisted. They view women as little more than property, which is completely contrary to what God says about women. See, God declared at creation in Genesis 1 and 2 the equal dignity, value and worth of men and women. And this is in the Bible because it's a graphic example of what happens when God is rejected and ignored. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes. When God goes, anything and everything goes. And we see this play out with tragic results in verses 25 to 30. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. He wants to rile up the other territories of Israel so that they will come and take revenge on the men of Gibeah. And this is what we see play out in the next few chapters. But it closes with verse 30. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel 
and speak. This is incomprehensible callousness and inhumanity. This is one of the darkest events in the Old Testament and this reveals the moral corruption of God's people at that point. And why is this in the Bible? Is this condoned by God? Absolutely not. This is recorded in the Bible to show us what happens when God is forgotten and when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And sadly, this is reflective of human history. Sadly, our world has been and continues to be marked by tragedies and injustices like this. Because we've turned our backs on God and we've done what is right in our own eyes. And the consequence that we see here when God is ignored and when we do what is right in our own eyes is that the weak are abused by the strong. See, in that society, women were weak economically, socially, physically and the men were powerful. And in this story, the men use their power to abuse the weak. And this is abhorrent to God. Because God is the most powerful being in the universe. And he does not use his power to abuse. He uses his power to serve. This is abhorrent to God because the Bible consistently teaches and declares the equal value and dignity and worth of men and women. And if we want to know God's attitude towards women, we only need to look at the life of Jesus. Jesus' attitude towards women was revolutionary. See, in that day, when women were again considered second-class citizens, Jesus openly and publicly interacted with women. He taught women. He had women as his disciples and his friends. He touched unclean women. He reached out to women on the margins of society. He protected women from violence. He told stories about women. He treated women with complete respect and dignity. And as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to follow in his footsteps. And so let me make two comments before we move on. The first is this. Violence against women is never acceptable. There is not a single passage in the Bible that justifies violence against women in any form. We have to admit that cowardly men have twisted and misused passages in the Bible to justify their wickedness and their violence against women, but the Bible can never rightly be used as a weapon for the abuse or the subjugation of women. And when it is, the person who is wielding the Bible in that way They are not standing with God. They are standing in opposition to God. Because God stands on the side of the oppressed, the exploited and the vulnerable. And so let me say it again as clear as I can. Violence against women is never acceptable. In whatever form. Emotional, psychological, verbal or physical. And husbands, you need to know that God has called you to an incredibly high standard. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
God doesn't give the husband power or authority over his wife. God gives the husband the joyful responsibility to love his wife through self-sacrificial action. The second comment I'll make is a question for the men. Let me ask you men, how do you view women? How do you talk about women? How do you look at women? How do you treat women? Is your view of women more driven by our culture or is it driven by God's word? Let's honestly ask ourselves these questions. Let's confront what is going on in our hearts because God wants the men and women of BPCC to walk in relationships of love, dignity and respect. And sadly, this is the incident which is the shocking conclusion to the book of Judges. And the book of Judges ends with the phrase that summarises the entire problem. The problem with God's people in that day and the problem with our world today. That everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the devastating consequence of living in this way is sinful chaos. It's religious confusion and it's moral corruption. And these stories force us to ask ourselves, well, how is my moral compass? Am I being guided by God's word? Or if I'm honest, am I being guided by what is right in my own eyes? forces us to ask, how is my relationship with God? Is there religious confusion in my life that's causing me to justify doing what is right in my eyes rather than what is right in God's eyes? Friends, there are consequences to living in this way. And God is graciously calling us to himself today. God is graciously reminding us that we don't have to live in this way. God is graciously reminding us that he has done everything necessary for us in and through Jesus for us to be rescued and redeemed. See, Jesus on the cross paid the penalty for our sin and our chaos and he freely gives us the gift of a restored new relationship with God. And Jesus rose from death, poured out his spirit into our hearts and he gave us a new power to obey God. And all of this means we no longer have to live in the chaos of doing what is right in our own eyes. We can have the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers. We can walk in the newness of life that Jesus freely gives. And we can experience the peace and the joy of doing what is right in God's eyes. And it's not something we earn. It's something we receive as a gift from God. So let's open ourselves up to him today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. Even these really difficult parts, Lord, because they teach us some profound truths. And we simply want to humble ourselves before you this morning. We want to open ourselves up to the finished work of Jesus upon the cross and the poured out spirit in our hearts.
so that we can live lives of peace, hope, joy and love for the glory of your name and for the good of your world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close this.